Luke 12. We are finishing Luke 12 here this morning, and we are going to uh, just engage these final words of Christ here in chapter 12. And as you're turning there and getting settled, just listen as I read the passage. We'll be studying Luke 12, verses 49 through 59. Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have, a bapt- I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there'll be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Let's pray together. Father, we now gather to continue to hear of Christ, to not only celebrate His table, as we just did, but also to engage His words. I pray, Lord, that these words would take root in our hearts. May we have the courage, Lord, to be honest as Christ's words divide through our hearts and reveal within us the things that are not right. and That it refines us makes us like gold. Lord, I thank you for this privilege we have. And Lord, may as we leave here, we leave here celebrating the fact that we get to live for you and in you and by you. And so God, I'm just grateful that we can have this moment. May you be glorified in it. In Christ's name, amen. You know, when I, uh, a few years ago, probably more like 20 years ago, I had an opportunity to uh, tour the uh, WGN Television Studios, and uh, it was a neat little tour, and uh, it, was, it was very interesting to go to uh, see where they do the news, and to see the weather center, and to see the place where they, they did the Bozo Show, remember the Bozo Show, and, uh, and the place where, I mean, all the stuff that happened in that, in that uh, television station, it was really cool to see kind of behind the scenes at, at, at that television station. And then a few years later, I had a very similar experience. I had an opportunity to get sideline tickets for Chicago Bears games. So I got to be on the sideline during the game by the players, walking around where the players were and and watching the game played right from a field perspective, which was really an incredible opportunity, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And what both of those experiences have in common is it's very interesting to see up close that which you've seen only on TV. Right? Like, like when, you, when, you, when you watch the news, 
And you see the newscasters out there giving the news, and they say, now we're going to go to the weather center. And then there's the weatherman in the weather center. The interesting thing is, is that the television studios at WGN are no bigger than the stage here, and the weather center is directly to the right of the stage where everybody's sitting. There is no weather center. It's just a room, and his desk is right next to the anchor's desk. And it all could fit right here on this stage. The Bozo Show could just fit where the first few rows of these chairs are. There wasn't, it wasn't a big top circus. It was a lie. It was one room. Everything occurred in one little room. You could fit three of the rooms in this space here where the Bozo Show was. It's kind of a, a letdown a little bit. Okay? And then you go out and you see a, a, a Bears game, and you see how incredibly huge these guys are. They are just massive beasts, and they run faster, and the game is much more violent and, and much faster, and the field is much shorter than it looks like on TV. On TV, it looks like that 10 yards takes forever to get through. Out on the field, you think, how in the world could this big guy not run 10 yards until you see how fast they are and how powerful these guys are? And, and the reality is that, that when you see something for real, oftentimes it blows away your perceptions. The reason why I'm telling you this is I was thinking, really, Luke chapter 12 is that moment for many people. A lot of the people, all of the people that were around Jesus in Luke 12 had a perception of what the Messiah should be, had a perception of what Jesus should be like or what, what the Christ would be like. But that perception wasn't right. It wasn't right. And these people had to come face to face with who He is. And what he came to do. And it's interesting, when you read through Luke 12, and even the passage I just read a minute ago, uh, there are words coming out of Jesus' mouth that you would think Jesus wouldn't say. Right? I mean, you would not think Jesus would say, you think I came to bring peace? I came to divide your family. Right? I mean, th that just doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? It doesn't sound like the words that he would say. Yet something is incredibly important for us to do, and it is to embrace not the perception of Jesus, not what we think the Bozo Show is like or what we think a football game is like, but who He really is, and embrace some of the harshness of that, some of the reality of it, some of the things that are a bit difficult. And so what Jesus is going to do as Jesus lays out for his disciples and for the people who are hearing here in Luke 12, what it really means to follow him. And he really, if you want to lay it out in, in a nutshell, that's what Luke 12 is about. If you want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, read Luke 12. If this was the first day of your Christian faith and you want to know what it means to be a Christ follower, you read Luke 12. It's right here. And what Luke 12 tells us are several very important things. It tells us we've got to put the kingdom of God first in our life. Luke 12 tells us, don't fear man, fear God. Luke 12 tells us, do not worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Do not worry about prospering. Do not worry about what you're going to get. Don't live for all of the worries of this world. God will provide for your physical needs, and He's already given you the kingdom of God. You need nothing else. Therefore, live every day as a faithful steward, knowing that judgment comes to those who ignore that truth. 
That's what Luke 12 is saying. He's laying it out in really clear, powerful terms. And when we get to this passage we're looking at here in, in verse 49, Jesus is now going to say, whatever perception you have of the Messiah, I'm going to blow them away. And I'm going to tell you what the Messiah has come to do. And so he lays it out for us. Very, very clear. Now, what he's done is he's laid out his, his teaching in, with three questions. There's three questions, actually, in this text, buried within in, in these ten verses. And, uh, and your outline is, a, is my rephrasing of those three questions. So the three questions, or the rephrasing of them, is this. Why did Jesus come to earth? That's the first question he's going to ask. Okay, ask it a little differently, but he's asking this question. Why did I come? Why do you think I came? Second question he asks. Why can't you see what's going on around you? Why can't you see what's happening? And the third question, why don't you take this seriously? Now the first question is about his mission. What is the mission of the Messiah? Very important to understand this point. What is the mission of the Messiah? Second question deals with discernment. How can you not see that? How can you not see and discern the mission of the Messiah all around you? Third question is a personal challenge. If this is what the Messiah has come to do and He wants you to see it, why don't you take it seriously then? How can you hear that, leave, and go ahead and just live for yourself after this, after you've heard these words? So it's a very, very important set of questions. And what I'm hoping that this does as we engage the mission and we engage discernment, we engage a personal challenge, is that I'm hoping that three things would happen. First, that you would hear what Jesus is saying. Praying that your ears would be open to hear it. Second, that you would actually order your life, every detail of your life around it. And as a result, third, you'd take it seriously. So that these aren't just good words that you just kind of walk away from, but they're life-changing words. That's the goal. Your life would change. So let's look at the first question. Why did Jesus come to earth. Now, the, he doesn't lead off in verse 29 with a question, but, uh, but let's, just, is he, let's see how he sets it up. Notice verse 49. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. Now, we have to stop and say, okay, now why is he saying this? And there's several things we're going to do. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take that statement, place it in its immediate context, and I'm going to back it up and, and place it into the context of the book of Luke, and then I'm going to back it up and place it in the context of the Old Testament. The reason why I'm going to go through this little exercise with you is I want you to hear these words because this defines Jesus. If you're on dealing with anybody who wants to know who Jesus is, this will help you understand and explain Christ and, and the Messiah and who we trust in and what he's doing and what his mission is. Okay, so, so the first thing we've got to understand is what's he saying? Now, remember, this is, we're cutting right in the middle of a point he's made. He's, made a, he's making a, a very huge point. Let's just back up a little bit to verse 42. Let's get a running start, because in verse 42, kind of represents, starts the summary of all of chapter 12. Okay, so let's just back up and just start reading at 42, and it'll get a running start into, that, into this verse in its context. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them the portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. 
But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and to drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour that he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Okay, it's pretty intense, right? So he's saying, who's the faithful servant of God? Who's the faithful one? The one who hears the message, hears the commands of the master, and orders his life by him and lives that way, whether the master's there or not. The one who hears the words and says, well, I don't have to do this, I don't have to do it all the time, makes excuses, starts living for himself, lives for his own agenda, starts acting out in sinful ways because he's doing that, will incur a beating and a casting out. So very, very powerful words of Jesus, right? I want you to follow me. I want you to do what I say. If you don't, there's consequences. Then what does Jesus do? He says this. The next thing he says in verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it would already be kindled, right? I've come to bring fire and I wish it was burning now. And what's he saying? He's saying, yes, these words that I'm saying are intense. That's my mission. My mission is to bring that kind of challenge to you. To bring that kind of challenge to you. Now, where did this mission come from? Why did he say this? Well, let's back it up. In Luke, we've already seen this. And in fact, these words, when Jesus spoke these words in verse 49, the people should not have been surprised by them. Right? If we back up a little bit, John the Baptist already said this about Jesus. If you go back to Luke 3, verse 16, John is talking, he's talking about the Messiah, and he says in 3.16, I baptize with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's coming with fire. So when he comes, there's this fire that's going to come with him, and this fire is meant to carry out a mission. Now the question is, where does this fire come from? Why does John say this? Why does Jesus say this? Well, actually, God said, talked about the fire of the Messiah in the book of Malachi. So now we're going to back up and place it in the context of the Old Testament. right? None of this is, should have been surprising to those original hearers if they were familiar with the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament talks about the coming of the Messiah. Listen to what it says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, defining the work of the Messiah. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. He's coming with fire. Why? He's purifying his people. 
You see, here's what happens. The people of God collect junk in their life, kind of like computers collect cookies. Right? If you just left your computer on all the time, and just constantly just you went on the internet, did this, did that, eventually it slows down, doesn't it? Because it's just collecting junk. And it's storing up. And if you opened up every pop-up that came your way, and you opened up everything that came on your computer, it would just clog up. Christians do the same thing. We go through life picking up a little bit of false theology here, a little false teaching here. No one challenges us in our own sin. We, we, we get comfortable in our own sin. And over time, we build up junk. And then some people start following those who are building up junk. And then they've never actually become a true follower of Jesus. And suddenly, you've got a whole mass load of people that think they're following God. And in reality, they're not. And he's saying that when the Messiah comes, he's going to purify. And he's going to burn off the junk so that we can begin to see who the true followers are and who aren't. Who they aren't. This is what he's doing. So when he comes, it's going to be intense. Now he goes on a little bit further. Malachi chapter 4 explains it even further. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. That day is, com- that day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now what's going to happen is they're going to be those who think they're following God. When that fire comes, they're going to find out they're not following God. And they will be consumed. Now you see all the fire imagery? It's coming because Jesus is coming to purify those that have allowed junk to get in the way and to burn off those who thought they were following God but weren't. So this is why He speaks the way He speaks. If you're not all in, you're all out. That's his message. If you're not all in, you're all out. Here's the refiner's fire coming. This is why Jesus speaks with such harshness. If there isn't something inside of you that says, I want to be all in, I know I'm not, but I want to be. If that isn't burning inside of you, then his fire is going to consume you the other way. See, this is what he's doing. This is why he speaks the way he speaks. Now, how does all of this happen? Where does this fire come from? How does this purifying happen? Where is it? Well, verse 50, he tells us about it. So we're back in Luke now. Luke 12, 50. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Whenever Jesus speaks of his baptism, he's always talking about his death. His death is going to be the ultimate reality. If you think about it, see, his death did two things. Number one, it becomes the single way that we get to God. Okay? And we know that, right? We just partook of the Lord's table. We put a cross up here. We remind ourselves, he died so that we could be forgiven. That's one side of his death. But there's another side of his death that you have to catch. Are you ready? Here's the part that's the harder part. His death also is a way of life for us a way of life. We live and walk in the cross as well. What does that mean? The mission of the cross, of Christ coming, giving up His life so that others may live, calls me to enter into that so that not only Christ dies for me, but then He calls me to die to myself and to live for you. 
to do good to my enemies, to care for those who don't love me, to carry out the mission, to suddenly say, I'm not going to worry about this world, and I'm not going to love this world. I'm now going to live for the cross and the mission of the cross. And so this is the fire that's coming. Will you trust in that for your salvation? And will you walk in that as a way of life? And if you trust in that for your salvation and you walk in it as a way of life, now you're beginning to be that pure silver and gold that's emerging out of the dross. And if you say, well, no, I don't want that, then you're going into the other side. You see, this is what he's doing. He's creating this division. Because the cross not only saves me, but it puts a demand on my life. Will I live for it? Will I live for it? Then he's going to go on now and unpack this division. Notice this division here. Here's the question, by the way. So verse 51 provides that, this first question that really is the centerpiece of it. He says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? It's quite a question, isn't it? No, he says. I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there'll be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? What's he getting at? Why is he saying this? He's saying, here's the reality. When you trust in Christ for your salvation, and you live in Christ as your mission, it will bring division. Because not everybody wants to live for Christ and not everyone wants to trust in Christ. And there are times when it will set you at odds with people. And it's easy to start saying that the goal of the kingdom is just everybody get along or the goal of the kingdom is to avoid the conflict. Right? I'm just going to disengage from it. But he's saying, don't, don't disengage, that's not the mission. The mission is we're engaging. And yes, realize it's bringing division, and that is the will of God. When I confront somebody at times, and have been in situations where I've confronted them on their sins, and they've gotten angry, and they've said horrible things, and written me long emails, and all of that, what I tell myself is, that is just as much of the mission as their repentance is. Because Jesus has come to create a division between the one who thinks he's following God and when he discovers he's not. Just as much as when he repents. Jesus saying, that's the mission. This division's going to happen. Many of you know that story. You felt it in your own family. You've trusted in Christ and a division has occurred. And you felt that division. And he's saying, that's, that's going to happen in the kingdom. Now the good news is, if you keep reading through Luke and then eventually get into Acts, which is like Luke volume 2, you begin to see that sometimes family members become the key, the ways, and the means through which the rest of the family comes to Christ, right? So this isn't just the whole definition, that you're going to trust Christ, your family's going to hate you, it's just going to be a horrible life, and you're going to die. Sometimes people get saved through that process, right? So there's hope in that. But here's what he's saying, don't, don't be afraid of that division. I heard a girl give her testimony a while back. And you guys might think that this is a horrible thing. I'm going to show you the testimony, though. This is just what happened. You can, you can decide what you think of this. It's a girl, teenage girl, 17 years old. Some older girls are sharing Christ with her in some youth ministry thing. And this girl comes to faith in Christ. This teenage girl does. And these girls, these older youth staff workers, they say to the girl, you need to get baptized this Sunday. Because you just placed your faith in Christ. 
We want to get you baptized. And we want you to invite your family. And this girl says, teenage girl says, I'll get baptized, but I cannot invite my family. I can't do it. I, I only live with my dad, and there's no way. And, and, uh, and they said, no, well, you really need to invite your dad. She says, you don't understand. My dad is a neo-Nazi. And if I were to ever join a church like this, if I were to ever be part of anything like this, he said he would kill me. Okay? Now, think about that. Picture that if you're a youth worker. What would you say to that girl at that moment? You want to know what the youth staff worker said? Now, you might be shocked when you hear this. Youth staff worker says, you might die. But I can't think of any better way to die than proclaiming Christ to your dad. Would you say that? It's an intense story, right? She's crying. It's emotional, right? I mean, I can't do it. Listen, Christ has called you to proclaim him. Don't back down. Right? Day one. This is the first day of her life as a believer. And she's being pushed to put it on the line. And this, this, this disciple says, listen, Christ is going to cause a division in your home. We put it on the line. She invites her dad. She does it. Her dad comes. He's angry. He's not happy with this at all. Just, he doesn't kill her, but he's not happy. Okay? He comes back the next week to beat up the pastor, basically, because he's angry. And he goes up to the pastor, and the pastor says, Hey, listen, I need your help with something. Right? He doesn't even let the guy talk to him. I need your help with something. We got more baptisms coming. I need you to help me with baptisms. <laughs> guy's got swastikas on his head. Seriously. And the guy's like, what? He's like, yeah, we got 22 people getting baptized. I need your help. Pastor's thinking, I just want to get this guy around 22 testimonies. Right? I need you to hold the towels and dry the people as they're coming off. He's like, What? Right? So he does it because he can't get out of it. The pastor won't let him out of it. Right? Guy has courage, right? I mean, how many of you would be scared, right? I mean, by the way, I met these people and I saw this guy. He scared the daylights out of me, right? I don't, seriously, I'm hearing the story thinking, I'm a wimp. I would not have done that. I would not have done that, right? I would have been like, Jeff, take that call. No. <laughs> right? Jeff, there's a guy out there. He wants to talk to you. He thinks your name is Steve. <laughs> Just go with it, you know. Right, seriously. So, the guy hears 22 testimonies and at the end places his faith in Christ. Isn't that incredible? Right? You know what he does now? He's sharing the gospel to neo-Nazis. After he places his faith in Christ, the guy says, pastor says, you need to get baptized next week and you need to bring these guys with you. And you know what his response was? They're going to kill me. <laughs> and he says, they might. But I can't think of any better way to die than proclaiming Christ to neo-Nazis. Right? You see, that's the division. You see, the reason I tell you that story is that it's one of those dramatic stories, right? But it makes a point. 
This division is real. And if we miss this point, if we miss the division, our instincts are to back away from it, right? Our instincts would be to say, oh girl, don't share the gospel if your dad's going to kill you. Don't share the gospel. See, God can't protect you from your dad, so, so don't share the gospel with him. Why don't you just wait? You see, if, we've, if we don't miss this point about Jesus, we will never live for the kingdom of God because we hate division and we hate getting murdered, right? We don't want that. But he's saying, do you understand why I've come? I've come for this division. I've come for it. That's the key here. Why did I come? I didn't come just so that it would all go easy for you. I came because, you see, I'm a refiner's fire, and I've drawn a line in the sand between those who follow me and those who don't. Keep that in mind. Let's look at the second question. Second question. Why can't you see what's happening? Okay, now comes a challenge. It says, and he also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there'll be a scorching heat. And it happens. Now he's setting up his question. <clears throat> you see his point. You go outside, you can tell the weather. Now the reason why he's using this weather point, I think, is twofold. Number one, you can figure out what's going on. Right? You can tell when it's going to rain. You can tell, what, right, out there, they could tell when the rain was coming, and they could know what direction the wind was blowing, and they knew when it blows in this direction, it's going to bring hot air. When the clouds are forming in that direction, it's going to be rain. And everybody throughout the history of the world has always been aware of the weather because the weather impacts our lives. And whatever impacts our lives, we're aware of. Now he's saying, why can't you see theologically what's going on around you? Look at verse 58 or 56. It says, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Now, why does he call him a hypocrite? Remember, the, the idea of a hypocrite is, is an actor, right? Somebody who pretends they're doing one thing, but in reality they're not. That's what an actor is. Ever see like an actor get interviewed on television? I remember one guy I saw being interviewed one time on Johnny Carson years ago. On the movies he plays, he's this big, strong, strapping guy. And interviewed, he was just this nerd. And, and you realize he could just pretend like he's a strong, strapping, leading man, but in reality he wasn't. He was just this really insecure guy. And he's saying, you guys are actors. You come and you surround me. Thousands of people are surrounding me and, and they're loving me and you're loving me, but in your heart, you're not seeing what John the Baptist told you. In your heart, you're not hearing what Malachi said. In your heart, you're not interpreting this moment for what it really is. You're not seeing the refiner's fire. All you're seeing is the blessing. You see, you pretend like you're following me, but in your heart, you're going to side with these Pharisees. They've witnessed the Pharisees call Jesus demonic. They've witnessed the Pharisees attack Jesus verbally. They've seen him challenge him. They see the lines drawing in the sand. They have it all right there. They know what Malachi said. They heard John the Baptist. They're aware, and yet... They refuse to see it, so they pretend like they're followers of Jesus. But in their heart, the moment means nothing. The seriousness of it means nothing. That's the point. This is very serious, is what he's saying. This is very serious. I think of that girl. She was sharing her testimony. 
And she's telling, she was, it was a bunch of pastors meeting, she was sharing her testimony, she's saying, you know, the reality is that I had that right there at that moment was faced from the first moment I placed my faith in Christ to say, am I all in or not? Am I willing to die for this? Four days into my salvation. And you better believe she takes her Christian walk seriously. Because she was challenged at the heart level. He's saying, you guys are just play acting. You're pretending like you love me. You're pretending like you follow me. But really, if you look at your heart, you're living for yourself. And when the pressure comes, when the division comes, when the Pharisees make it clear, they're going to kill him. Will you go to the cross? Will you stand there or not? He's saying, you're a hypocrite. You're just acting a certain way. Why can't you see what's going on? See, what hypocrites do, hypocrites want Jesus to serve them. They don't want to serve Jesus. That's what a hypocrite does. You can always tell hypocrisy when it's coming out of your mouth. I'll give you the little sign. If you have any statement that says, Jesus would not want me happy, or Jesus would not want me fulfilled, therefore I'm going to go over here and do this sin. You're a hypocrite. I've had many people say that. About ready to do something very sinful, you say, why, did you, why are you doing this? Well, Jesus wouldn't want me unhappy, and this, this situation makes me unhappy. What are you thinking? Really? That is not, read the red letters in your Bible and come back to me. All you got to do, get a Bible that has red letters in it, read only the red letters, and then tell me if that worldview and theology works. See, that's hypocrisy. My happiness is the center of Jesus' life, not his kingdom. And he's saying, I don't want that. You're missing the seriousness of this moment, which leads us to the third question. Okay, so we have this first question. Why did he come? Right, he came to force a decision. Why can't you see this? Why can't you be aware of how serious this is? You need discernment. And then gets to the challenge. Here's the third question. Why don't you take this seriously, right? Look at verse 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right. Now, what's he getting at? That's actually a, a, a personal call. It's actually a very personal moment. And he's saying, why can't you hear what I'm saying and take it seriously? I remember talking to a guy who was a mechanic, engineer, mechanic. He worked on very complex, sophisticated engines in sophisticated buildings. I don't even know what he did. I mean, it's beyond my skill set to understand this thing. Incredibly brilliant guy. And I was talking to him about Christianity, and I just asked him a question. I said, you know, do you read your Bible? Just out of curiosity. He was having issues in his life. I just said, you know, how much time do you spend in the Word of God? He said, oh, I could never understand the Bible. I'm, I'm not one of those academic guys. I'm like, you can fix this engine. And you're telling me you can't read your Bible? Now, I understand there's spiritual eyesight, but that's what this question is driving you to. Why are you blowing this off? Why are you disengaging from this message? This is the other way you can ask, ask Jesus' question. When you hear these words, it should drive you to take this seriously. And we, as a people, in our Western culture, have mastered the ability to build and fix such incredible things. And all of us are skilled and gifted in such incredible things, and yet, when it comes to God, and especially sometimes guys can be this way, they can just disengage from it. Ah, I'm just not taking it seriously. Ah, you know, whatever. So, you know, that's my wife's deal. 
it's easy to pull away. And he's saying, listen, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? Why don't you just stop for a moment, quit following the trends, and take God seriously? That's what he's saying. Get off the bandwagon, right? There's all these thousands of people just rushing Jesus, and he's saying, stop. Think about what you're saying, what you're doing here. Don't just rush in with these crowds. Take it seriously. So then, in order to make his point, he gives this illustration. He says, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the very last penny. So, you're outside, you're cutting down your tree in your backyard, and you don't realize that there's actually a science to tree cutting, and you drop the tree on your neighbor's house. Now your neighbor's very mad at you. He's angry. He wants to take you to court. He wants to sue you for everything you have. Would you try every single thing you could to settle out of court? Of course you would. Of course you would. You know that you're at fault. You know you cut the tree down. You know it landed on his house. You know that there's no way out of this unless you can get him to settle out of court. Jesus is saying that's how you live your life. Now Jesus is saying, do you realize something? When he gave all those stories, all those parables about the masters and stuff, Jesus is saying, I'm the judge. And I've given you my will. And the Father has told you what he wants out of life. And the Father has told you that he's going to provide for you and care for you, and yet you still worry. And he's told you that he's given you the kingdom, and yet you still pursue living for this world. And he's told you that he wants you to live to be ambassadors of his kingdom, but yet you run away when it gets hard and there's division. And he says, that's bad. Why ignore that reality is what he's saying. Settle out of court before the day of judgment. How do you settle out of court? The good news is there's a baptism through which Jesus was baptized to make it right. And there's a power that he gives us in his spirit because not only is he baptizing us with fire, he's baptizing us in the Spirit. And there's a power that comes where you can live in the truth and in the power of God. And so what he's saying is, listen, turn to me. That's the implication. I'll make it right for you. Come to me and say, I'm done living for myself. I'm done living for, for, for my own kingdom and just adding Jesus and layering him on top of my kingdom. I won't be all in. I want to be all in. And so Jesus ends this section by saying, make it right now. Make it right now. You know, let's wrap it up here. Many, many people, they listen to the Word of God every week, and then they leave. And the moment they walk out the door, they're consumed with their life, right? It's a temptation for all of us. And Jesus is challenging us to say, Let's make today different. Let's not make today the day that the moment this is done, we get consumed with our schedules and our lives, but we walk out of here ready to say, whatever you want for me, Jesus, that's what I'll do. I won't back down. I won't love this world, and I won't fear this world. I won't fear for my future, and I won't love the things that are here 
Instead, I love you and trust that you will provide. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, how do we know if we're living for the kingdom of God or not? And I've got a simple way, to, a way of evaluation for you. You can think about as a way that will help you uh, discern whether or not you're truly living all in or not for the kingdom. I want you to think about this. Our lives, we build our lives around certain routines. Everybody does. Our, our life is built around certain routines. If you go back and look at the routine of your week, look at the rhythm of your week, look at the rituals of your week, look at all of those things that go on in your week, I would ask you to ask yourself and say, God, show me this. Who's at the center of those routines and rituals? What do they all revolve around? If all the routines and rituals revolve around you and your comfort and your life, then you're not online for the king. If all of those rituals and routines, now they, they, they happen, right? I mean, you know, eating's addictive, right? So, I mean, we eat every day and, and sleeping's important and there's certain rituals and routines. I'm not saying throw it all out. But, but what I'm saying is, is that at the center of that, the center of those routines, are they open to the leading and the work and the ministry of the kingdom of God? Or is the end goal you? What's at the end of that? I think Jesus is saying, if you're not living for the kingdom, then you're loving this world and you're afraid of this world. And you're living out of fear that you won't get, fear you won't be provided for, want to have more stuff, living for that. And, my, and, and if your rituals and routines are built around those things, that shows you what your values are. So the point of evaluation I would give you is just evaluate your rituals and your routines. Evaluate them. And say, God, are they really kingdom-centered? And then know this. All of us are tempted every moment of this day to love this world and to fear this world. And that has a pull on us. And so as we evaluate those things, let's try to find those areas in our lives where we say, I'm loving the world there. Or I'm afraid and I'm acting out of fear. And then cycle those back and say, I'm going to trust you'll provide. God, I've got the kingdom and I've got your protection. It's all I need. Life is a vapor. So the biggest question is, how do you want to spend your vapor? Let's pray. Father, it's so incredible to hear these words. They are intense. Lord, may we truly, truly, truly hear these words. May it make a difference. Lord, I, I know this by experience, and I can say to you, I'm grateful that you, you've even provided a way to rescue us from the futility of living for this moment. It is so foolish. Fear is never resolved by serving fear. Loving this world never satisfies. Trusting in your provision, trusting in your protection, trusting in what you have provided in your kingdom is where true joy comes from, God. I believe that. May we live that way as believers. 
May we evaluate the rituals and the rhythms of our lives to be sure we're living for your kingdom and not for ourselves. God, I thank you that Christ has come to refine us. Thank you for burning off the dross in our lives. Thank you that you do this in love, not in hatred. You're not frustrated with us. You're not angry with us, but with compassion. You're burning the dross off, Lord. I'm grateful we can stand in your love. I'm just thankful for Christ and all that he's provided in his name. Amen.